I don't know how you follow that. <laughs> so if you know anything about me, you know I like to wear sweaters. So I don't know if they kind of coordinated this out that I got to preach on the, the day that we all got to wear sweaters. But, but anyway, that's an exciting thing. And I'm, I'm glad for those of you who were able to participate in and, and, and have fun with that. So this is the, the third week of our, of our Christmas series called Fulfilled. And we've been looking at the promises that, that, that God has made about Christ and seeing how he's fulfilled those promises. Promises are powerful things. Um, a, a promise is a declaration of assurance that one's going to do a particular thing or that a particular thing is going to happen. Oftentimes, promises deal with something that's going to happen in the future. You know, a future promise of a desired result gives us hope, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, if you believe that the person who is making that promise is trustworthy, that promise can often impact how you live your life even today. I mean, for example, let's say that, uh, that your parents tell you on your birthday they're going to take you out to your favorite restaurant so you can have your favorite meal. You never go there because it's way too expensive, but on your birthday you're going to go there. So, of course, you don't eat anything the entire day, right, anticipating that you're going to get to go there. Um, an hour before it's time for you to go to, to, your, to this restaurant, your, one of your siblings comes home who, from McDonald's, and they have a bunch of cheeseburgers in there, and you're really hungry, and you're looking at that bag, and you're really tempted, but you're like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. I've been waiting all, all week to go to my favorite restaurant. Why do you do that? Because you believe the promise that your parents made to you, and you're looking forward to eating that favorite food. You have hope, and it impacts what you do even right now in the present. It makes the difference how you make decisions today. You know, unfortunately, oftentimes as human beings, we've all experienced broken promises, haven't we? You know, sometimes as a result, sometimes a result of forgetfulness. Um, the person who made the promise forgot. I did that this week. I was supposed to meet somebody, and I, I forgot. I got the, the times messed up. Sometimes um, the reason is because of a result of circumstances that, um, that, that are beyond our control, and it's impossible for us to keep those promises. And, but, it, but it hurts. Doesn't it hurt us when, when someone makes a promise and they don't keep it? But you know, with God, that will never, ever happen. God never forgets. There's nothing that ever keeps God from keeping his promise. Matter of fact, in Numbers 23, 19, it says it this way. God is not human that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And of course, the answer to all of those is no. God never does that. God is the almighty ruler of the universe, and whatever he declares will come to be. God never gets new information and declares, oh, I, I didn't, didn't know that. No, the circumstances for God never changes. He always keeps his promises. And so this series that we've been doing called Fulfilled has been all about God keeping his promises. You know, sometimes we refer to that as prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking to a prophet and telling him what, what truth that he wants to have communicated to you and to me. You know, sometimes it's in, the, in, in a form of foretelling where God is communicating a truth to us. And, in, and we're going to be looking at, we've been looking at the book of Isaiah, and uh, we're going to continue with that today. Um, and, and one of the ways that God gives foretelling is by he's telling them you need to obey, and if not, there's going to be judgment. Sometimes it's in the form of foretelling, which is where God communicates about a future event. In the book of Isaiah, God has been telling his people to repent of their sin or they're going to experience judgment. 
And we've also seen that God has been interspersing in the midst of that words of encouragement and hope. And so the Israelites, they needed to hear these words of hope because the nation of, of, of Assyria was, was, was bearing down on them and was attacking them. As a matter of fact, during the ministry of Isaiah, you remember in the, in the northern kingdom was Israel, and he was in the southern kingdom, but in the northern uh, uh, kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians actually took, captured them and took them into exile. So it was into this historic context that Isaiah prophesies. Isaiah acknowledges these are dark days. And I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like the days we're living in are dark days, yes? I mean, we think about school shootings, we think about divisive politics, we think about phone scams this time of year, but even more personally, we think about cancer and dementia and, and relational conflicts, and on and on the list could go. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we saw in Isaiah 9-2, um, Isaiah said it this way. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has come. And we saw that that light that was to come was a child. It was a child. In Isaiah 9, 6, two weeks ago, Jonathan and share with us for this passage, for to us a child is born. If you remember, we talked about how that acknowledges the humanity of Christ. To us a son is given. And we, we acknowledge that that identified the deity of Christ, that he's God, and the government will be on his shoulders. And then last week, Pastor Dallas, we looked at Isaiah 7, 14, which says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so these two prophecies tell us about the coming of the birth of a child, but it wasn't just an ordinary child. No, we, we, we've read that this child was born of a virgin, which, because God was his father. Jesus is God in the flesh coming to earth. And so we saw how these prophecies pointed to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And God gave these prophecies as a sign of hope and as a way for them to not miss when the Messiah actually arrived. The book, these uh, prophecies in the book of Isaiah concerning Jesus were given some 700 years before they were fulfilled. The, the children of Israel were familiar with these prophecies um, as they understood the Old Testament, and they understood them to mean that when the Messiah arrived, that he would overthrow the ruling government, that he would establish a new, a new government, and then establish an earthly kingdom. And even as we read in the New Testament with the disciples, you know, Oftentimes, that's exactly how they understood these prophecies to be fulfilled as well. As Isaiah continues to write in the book of Isaiah, he, he shifts his focus from the, from the prophecy about the defeat of Judah or the defeat of, uh, of Israel to, to the defeat of, of Judah by the Babylonians. And then he prophesies um, the fact that there's going to be a remnant that's going to be able to return back to Israel after this Babylonian captivity. I mean, so as you can imagine... This was hard news for the nation to hear, to hear that they were going to be defeated and then there was only going to be a small remnant that was going to return back to Israel. So in the midst of that discouraging news, Isaiah writes um, Isaiah 53 as a way to bring hope and encouragement and comfort to the Israelites. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, if you want to turn to Isaiah 53, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Undoubtedly, this, was, this, this passage is, was confusing to, to the Israelites as they read it, 
you know, because in, in Isaiah 53, we're going to read about a suffering servant, one who is going to die. And, and we could ask the question, well, how in the world is that good news? How are we supposed to understand this prophecy? How, how is this to bring comfort and hope to those who are in exile when they read about this suffering servant that's going to die? Well, we want to take a look at this passage and see if we can't, can't answer these questions. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, let's, let's pray, and then we'll take a look at Isaiah 53, all right? Father, it's good for us to be able to be together this morning. Thank you, Father, that you have given to us your word. You, you have recorded these prophecies 700 years before they were even fulfilled. Lord, that, that we might come to understand who you are, to come to understand what your plan is. And I pray, Father, that even today, as, as we read them, Lord, that you would allow your spirit to have freedom, to help us to understand your truth. Lord, I pray your spirit would, would help us to be able to, to, to know how to apply this to our lives and would prick our hearts. And Lord, that as a result of our time being here this morning, that we would truly understand that the true meaning of Christmas and, Father, that we would be drawn closer to you. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me just say this at the very outset about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about Jesus. I mean, actually, you could say it this way. The entire Bible is about Jesus. I've heard it said this way. History is his story. And, And it's all about the plan that God has Um, through Jesus Christ for what he's going to do. And so in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is all about preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. In in the Gospels, we read about the life and the death of Jesus, and then then we go on from there. All the rest of the New Testament is all about about how we're supposed to live in light of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Actually, in in Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 37 Jesus is, is sending his disciples out to go and do ministry, and he actually quotes from Isaiah 53, and he, he, this is what he said, Isaiah 53, um, well, Luke 22, 37, it says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. I mean, that passage in Luke, Jesus is, is, is quoting Isaiah 53, 12, and he's telling his disciples that he is the one who's the fulfillment of this prophecy. So let's see, take a look at this prophecy and see what we can learn about Christ. The, the first thing that, that God has Isaiah record in Isaiah 53 is about the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's read it, um, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I mean, the first thing that we notice here is that that Isaiah is asking a question. He's asking the question, who has believed our message. And if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus Christ, there really wasn't all that many that believed. Um, at the end of his life, there was only 11 out of the 12 of the disciples that he specifically called. And there wasn't this huge acceptance of Jesus' teachings or some large group that was following it after he died or when he died. He goes on, Isaiah asked this question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been, been revealed? Basically, 
Basically, he's saying that the Lord's saving power was not revealed as we would have anticipated. You know, when God created the world, we got to see a demonstration of his power, didn't we? The mighty arm of his power. But when Jesus came as the Messiah, he didn't come as as the powerful lion. He came as as a lamb. And so Isaiah goes on in in verse 2, and he says that he came as a tender shoot. He was one that was born out of dry ground, which which is a description of the state of Israel at, at that time. And we know from the Christmas story that, that when Jesus was born, he came as a, as a humble servant. And we're familiar with this. He was, he was born in poverty in Bethlehem. You remember, he was born, there was no room for him. Um, he was born in a cattle stall. His first cradle was a feeding trough. His parents, Mary and Joseph, were poor. He grew up working in a, in a carpenter shop in, in, on the wrong side of the tracks. He, he was brought up in in a despised city called, called Nazareth. And, and as verse 2 goes on, it says there was nothing special about his appearance. He, he was no different than the average Jewish man. There was nothing about his appearance that would attract people to him. And then verse 3 goes on and says how people treated him. It says he was despised. He, he was rejected. He knew what it was like to suffer. Others were ashamed of him. They said they hid their faces from him. He, he was looked down on because he didn't possess the things that the world possesses that they, they, they esteem as important, like, like wealth or, or, or social status or, or position. And so Isaiah gives us a brief description of the life and the ministry of Jesus. But the next section we're going to read is going to be a lot lengthier um, description of Jesus, and it's his death. And it, and it gives us a number of prophetic details about he, how he was going to die. And I want to suggest to you that, you know, we can learn a lot about God through the life from the earthly ministry of Christ. We can learn about the character and the priorities of God. We can learn um, about all that, that Jesus did from his life. But, but, you know, the greatest part of Jesus' mission had to do with his death, had to do with his dying. Ultimately, that is why he came. And, and I believe that's why, why God had Isaiah spend a lot more time speaking about his death in this passage. You know, it is a crazy thing to, to think about that this prophecy was recorded 700 years before it was fulfilled. It, this, this prophecy was written even before Roman crucifixion had even been invented. I mean, the normal way for crucifixion for Jews would have been stoning, and yet you're going to see how we read in this prophecy about Roman cru- crucifixion. I got, a, I got a Christmas card this past week from Mike and Deb Manley. I don't know if they're here or not, but... Um, it said this about Jesus fulfilling the prophecies that were written about him. It says the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled throughout his life, his death, and his resurrection. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy are staggering. And, and ma- mathematicians say it this way. So one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in ten quintillion. One person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one chance to 10 to the 157th power. One person fulfilling 300 prophecies, only Jesus. Only Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that these prophecies were written for the benefit of the exiles to give them hope. But I also want to suggest these prophecies were written for us today. As we look back, it gives us a confidence to know that these events occurred exactly as they are predicted 
and they, they occurred exactly as they were written and planned by God. So we have the life and ministry of Jesus, so let's take a look then at the, at the death as is recorded here in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Let's stop right there. How will you understand what in the world's going on here? I mean, what, what is going on? Well, if you remember, in, during the time of Moses, God gave the nation of Israel a set of ceremonial laws for them to follow in order for them to worship God. The, these laws included a number of sacrifices and offerings that they had to offer for their sins. They were given to Israel as a constant reminder of their sin and its consequences. I mean, the scriptures tell us that God is holy. He's perfect in every way, and he can't tolerate sin in his presence. God's standard is perfection. You know, the, the world tells us something like this. The world basically tells us you're, you're, that we're good people. Hey, you're, you're enough. Um, Got to be true to yourself. Just, just, just follow your heart. Just look, look within. But it doesn't take very, a, a very thorough examination for us to know that's not true. Even if you reject God's moral standards, and you say, I don't, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe that stuff, even if you want to say that, you still have to admit that you know you don't even live up to your own standards. You know that you certainly could be better than you are. See, our problem is we're sinful. From birth, we are selfish, we're, we're full of pride, we don't like it when other people tell us what to do. And we, while we may not be as evil as we could be, we ha all have the propensity within us to be evil. Even the good that we often do is motivated by, by self-serving motives. And because of our sinful nature, we've rebelled against God, and as a result of our sins, we deserve death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. That is separation from, from God for eternity. At the heart of Israel's religious system, an innocent, an innocent animal, oftentimes a lamb, would be sacrificed for the guilty sinner. The person would place their hands on that lamb, and as a way they were saying, I'm transferring my sin onto that animal, and then that, that animal would die as a substitute in the place of that person to cover their sin. The priest would then kill the lamb, the price of sin. He would take its blood, he would sprinkle it on the altar before the Lord. And this, this ritual was to be a reminder to the people that God was holy that they were dirty and sinful because of, they were dirty because of their sins and that the only way they could come to God was when their sins were atoned for. I, I mean, if I brought a lamb up here and I grabbed a knife, you would, we would all be aghast. I mean, this ritual was gross, it, it was gruesome, it was bloody, and it was a reminder to the people of the penalty of sin was death and only through the shedding of blood was their forgiveness. And so Isaiah is telling us that Jesus has become the innocent, suffering servant who died for the sacrifice for sin. Jesus didn't die for anything wrong that he had done. No, he was the perfect son of God. But he died because of what you and I, what we have done. Look at, look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. It says, and look at the word our. It says, he took our infirmities. He carried our Sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
It was our sin that he carried. And in verse 5, it says he was pierced. Jesus' hands and his feet were pierced by the nails. He was thrust through. He was pierced by, by the Roman sword. And we see this prophecy fulfilled in, in Matthew 27, 35, where it says they crucified him, which, of course, we know would have meant that they nailed, they pierced his hands and his feet. In John 19, 34, we see this, this, this prophecy fulfilled and it says that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and, and water to make sure that he was really dead. It goes on and says he was crushed. Jesus was crushed under the weight of a burden. What was that burden? Well, verse 6 tells us what that burden was. It says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, sin is a burden that the longer you carry it, the heavier and the heavier and the heavier that it becomes. And notice it says that the sins of all of us were placed upon Jesus all at once. You know, we have trouble carrying the burden of our own sin. Can you imagine carrying the sins of all of mankind, having them all thrust on you all at once? That's what Scripture tells us. We see this fulfilled in, in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, when Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We also see in verse 5 it says that he was punished. The punishment was upon him. He was whipped by the Roman soldiers and given stripes. We see this fulfilled in, prophetically in Matthew 27, 26 when it records for us that Jesus was flogged, which is another way of saying that he was whipped. And as a result of those whippings, he got these stripes. Now it says that this punishment brought us peace. You know, the only way for a lawbreaker to be at peace with the law is for them to suffer the punishment that the law requires. So say, for example, that, that, that I was, um, was found guilty by the court, and, and because of that, I had a $5,000 fine. Well, for me to be at peace with, with that, peace with the law, I would have to write out, take a check out, you know, write, write out a check and, and pay $5,000. But let's say that somebody else wrote that check, right? I could take that check, I could pay my fine, I would be at peace with the law even though I hadn't actually paid the fine. Somebody else did. Jesus kept the law perfectly. Jesus was at peace with God. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He took the punishment that you and I deserve so that you and I can be at peace with God. Now the passage goes on and says that by his wounds we are healed. You know, the, the infection of sin has to be removed before we can begin to experience healing. And Jesus was wounded with a mortal wound so that you and I could experience healing and forgiveness. Now, Isaiah continues on and describes the, birth, uh, the death of Jesus this way, beginning in verse, pick it up at verse 6. He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a, like, led like a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So it goes on and describes him here as, as the lamb of God. In verse 6 it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. You know, like sheep we are born with a nature 
that prompts us to stray, to decide to go our own way. You know, by nature, we were all born with a sinful nature, and by choice of an act of our will, we're children who are disobedient to God. And it says, as a result, it said, each of us has turned to his own way. We were created by God to follow God. But in our rebellion, we decided we didn't want to do that. We wanted to follow our own way. And so we rebelled against God. And I just asked this question. I mean, what happens to a sheep that wanders off on its own and goes its own way? You know what happens? It dies. Because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin, we are dead. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd. And that's what he talked about earlier, that ceremonial law where they required a lamb to be sacrificed for sins to be forgiven. Well, that was under the law. But under grace, the good shepherd, Jesus, has died for the sheep. See, Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Jesus' death was not a mistake. He didn't die because he was a victim, because he couldn't do something about it. I mean, if Jesus had wanted to, the scriptures tell us he could have called 10,000 angels and he could have put a stop to it right there and then. But instead, we're told that he remained silent. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a sheep for her shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. We see this prophecy fulfilled in Matthew 27, 12 to 14, where it says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear? Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? And Jesus made no reply. Not even a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, now think about that. When we go under injustice, right? When we suffer, do we hold our tongues? Yeah, not usually. Jesus experienced all the pain of his suffering silently. And not only that, in verse 8 it says that he remained silent even when he was illegally tried and condemned. This, this whole legal thing that was going on was a sham. It, it wasn't right. It was illegal. You know, in our court system, you can appeal an unjust trial, but Jesus didn't appeal for another trial. This was the reason that he came. In, in John chapter 18, verse 11, you remember the high priests and the soldiers, they came to arrest Jesus, and, and Peter, impetuous Peter, he pulls out his sword, and he's not that good of a shot, and he whacks, and he whacks the ear off of, of Malchus, right, the high priest's servant. And, and Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I mean, basically what Jesus is saying here is, hey, gee, Peter, this, the ultimate reason that I have come is to die. Now, the truth of the matter is, all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were not able to take away the sins of the world. I, I, and I, I want to guarantee, if that were possible, I guarantee there is no way God the Father would allow Jesus Christ to go to the cross. They were only a covering. They were a covering for sin, but they didn't remove sin. They, all, they were a sacrifice. They all pointed to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Only Jesus' death as the perfect God-man was a suitable sacrifice for our sin, for the sins of men. And that is why John the Baptist, you remember when, John, when, when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist has to see him, sees him for the first time, he says this, Behold 
the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist understood. So we've talked about the life and the ministry of Jesus. We've talked about the death of Christ. Well, this passage goes on then and talks about Jesus' resurrection and his exaltation. Beginning in verse 10. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge and my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What's God's perspective? What's God's perspective on the sacrifice of Jesus? You know, even though Jesus was crucified by the hands of wicked men, Jesus' death was part of God's plan from before the creation of the world. Notice these verses. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, For he, God, chose him, Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy, or for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption and sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God knew what he was going to do before he created. Look at, look at uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 20. It says, You were redeemed with the precious blood of, G- of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen when? Before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. Do you understand that part of God, this was part of God's plan from the very beginning? Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God knew he was going to, that Jesus was going to have to come and die as the Savior of the world. Jesus was not plan B. Jesus was plan A. He was always plan A. And look what it says in Isaiah 53.10. It says, it was God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Let that sink in. It was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. I mean, let me ask you this question. I mean, would you be willing to allow your child to die if it would save the life of another? And and I'm not talking about like you're being forced into this, right? I'm talking about like, no, that that this was part of your plan. And and would you love somebody enough to let that happen? And and what happens if you found out that that person that your child is going to die for is, is a wicked person. They're not very nice. They're, and they're totally undeserving. Do you understand? That is exactly what Jesus Christ, what God the Father allowed Jesus Christ to go through. I mean, Romans 5, 8 says it this way. God demonstrates his love for you and for me. Even while we were yet sinners, when we were enemies of God, that is when Jesus died for us. That, my friends, is amazing love. I mean, the the, the love of the Father that he would be willing to make the greatest sacrifice of all, the death of his son so you and I could be forgiven. And even the love of Jesus. Jesus wasn't fighting and screaming and saying to the Father, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to die for those wicked, nasty people. 
Jesus gave his life willingly. No one took the life of Jesus. In Matthew 19, 28, it says, later, this is Jesus saying, he says, later, knowing that all was completed, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, which is what we've been talking about here today, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, I want you to notice, he said, it is finished. What was finished? He had finished the mission for which he had come. He had given himself. And it says he gave up his spirit. It doesn't say anybody took it from it. It says he gave it up willingly. You know, it's been said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allowed Jesus Christ to die as an act of evil men so that you and I could be forgiven and become a child of God. And and this is the the challenge. and, And to us, it seems like a dilemma. And that's this. God's holy. God can't tolerate sin. He can't allow sinners into his presence. And no matter how good we try to be, we will never be good enough. Why? Because we can never be perfect. And not only that, God is just, which means he can't overlook our sins. Sin matters to a holy God, and justice demands that the guilt is judged. And God is also a God of love, which he wasn't willing to let it end there. He certainly could have. He was under no obligation to you and to me. And so the question is this, how is it that a holy God who is just can forgive us who are sinners all at the same time? And his solution is that he would be willing to die in our place so that justice can be served. Remember, the penalty of sin is death. And you and I could be forgiven. So at the cross... The justice and the mercy of God collide in Jesus. I mean, seriously, think about it. Is there ever a God in the universe that is willing to be pierced and crushed and punished and killed so you and I could be free? You realize every other religion in the world says work hard to try to be good enough and then maybe God will accept you. That is not what Christianity teaches at all. It's impossible for us to ever be good enough. I mean, do you begin to understand now why this message was a message of comfort and of hope and of joy? That this really is the real meaning of Christmas? Jesus ultimately was born because he came on a mission to die for you and for me. That is what Christmas is all about. And not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead. I mean, look at Isaiah 53.10 says, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Jesus triumphed over sin and death, and he rose again in victory. Jesus went to the cross with you and me on his mind, and now he lives as the conquering Savior. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, It says that Jesus Christ was obedient, obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And the passage goes on then, it says, and therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. 
And you think about, what was it that motivated Jesus to do that? And, you know, and we could say, I mean, on one hand, you could say, well, it was, it was to glorify God. And that's not wrong. That certainly is right. But, you know, Jesus was glorifying God while he was still in glory, while he was still in heaven. What's the one thing that Jesus didn't have in heaven? And you know what that thing was? It was you. It was me. That's what motivated Jesus to come. Why was Jesus willing to become the suffering servant? Again, in verse 10, it says, he will see his offspring. Jesus didn't want to have her without you. Jesus died for me. Let's say that together. Jesus died for me. Say that one more time. Jesus died for me. Each and every one of us, that is why Jesus died. And in Hebrews 12, too, it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and that, that phrase, the joy set before him, looking at the cross, it's like, what? What's that joy set before him? And you know, what I really believe what that, that verse is telling us is that when he, went, he was looking at the cross, he was looking beyond the cross, and the joy set before him was you and me because he could see what was going to be accomplished because of the cross, that you and I could be forgiven, that you and I could become children of God. So this is the conclusion. God has given us his promises to give us hope. He prophesied to the nation of Israel that Jesus would be born. Christmas is all about God giving the greatest gift of all, the gift of his son, Jesus. And we've seen today that Jesus was born to die. That was the ultimate reason why he came. Jesus died in our place so that the judgment for sin could be paid and you and I could be forgiven. God came up with this plan out of love for us so that we could be forgiven and have an eternal relationship with him. You owed a debt that you could never pay, and Jesus paid that debt with his life. And so the invitation is this. The question is, how are you going to respond to, to that most amazing, gracious gift that was ever given? I mean, some, maybe you sit here today, and maybe for the very first time, you're beginning to understand what this true significance of Christmas really is. And if that's you, are you willing to acknowledge your sin debt to God and, and acknowledge that no matter how good you are, you got to stop trying to be good enough because you can never be perfect? Are you, are you willing to repent of your attempts at trying to be good? Are you willing to admit your sin and, and with a desire to repent, that is to turn away, turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus? Are you willing to submit to the God of the universe and trust in Jesus alone as your rescuer from sin? If so, tell that to God. Call out to him, admit your sin, your need of a savior. Earlier in Isaiah, he says it this way, Isaiah 45, 22 says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, death for you as a payment for your sin, 
the challenge is to do that today. And for those of you who are believers here today, those of you who already have accepted Christ, I mean, the question I would ask, are you overwhelmed with how much God loves you? Are you still in awe of God's rescue plan that cost you nothing but cost him everything? You know, the gospel is not, so, is not a, so much a statement about you and me. It's a statement about how amazing our God is. Are you still amazed by him? Are you humble in his presence? Do you worship him? Is he the Lord of your life? Are you, are you living a life of gratitude to God for all that he has done, realizing without him you wouldn't have life? And if you sit here today and you say, you know, I know there's some, there is some things between me and my God. Man, I, I just want to encourage you to, to, to deal with that. I mean, the reason Jesus went to the cross and died was so that we could have victory over sin. So not so that we can mess around with sin. So why not repent and surrender to him? I mean, let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to lead you in prayer. If you, you hear, happen to hear today, and maybe for the very first time, you're realizing, wow, Okay, I knew that Jesus came as a baby, but I didn't realize that he came on a mission to die as the rescuer for, for my sin. I mean, if that's you, just in the quietness of this moment with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I mean, have a conversation. Tell that to God. Cry out to him. Let him know that you, you acknowledge your sin and you understand that you're not good enough. And, and today, that, that you are placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You want to repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. And that you want him to be your rescuer, your savior. Tell that to him. And my brothers and sisters, if, you are, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what does your relationship with God look like? I mean, have you been playing around with with your walk with God and you really haven't been all that serious about it? You've kind of taken it for granted and, and forgot the price that it costs for, for you to even be his child? I mean, if you haven't been amazed with God and his love, my, my encouragement today would be if there's things that are keeping you from that, to, to repent of those things, turn away from him and turn to God and just tell him how much you love him and how amazed you are with him and spend time with amazing, this amazing God who would rather die than live without you. God in heaven, this is an amazing chapter in the Bible. And at first read, it seems like death Dying, how does that give hope? But Lord, as we've unpacked it and we understand it, Lord, we understand that it's the only hope that we ever have. It's Jesus. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for living our lives for, or for so many other things and forgetting that the greatest gift that was ever given was your son so that we might have a relationship with you that will last for all of eternity. God, help us to even live our lives beginning today in light of your amazing love for us. Lord, may that draw us into a relationship with you. May we crave that. 
Father, thank you for doing a work in each one of us. Continue that work, we pray in Jesus' name.